Alrighty. You ready to read the thing? Oh, yes. On a beach outside the quiet Fijian town of Levuka, a ship had been drawn up onto the white sand and left. In the beginning, this was to have been a temporary arrangement, while the insurers and owners argued the cost of repair versus the value of the ship. These arguments stretched on for years as the ship waited. With an open gash in her hull and the engines inside slowly dissolving into rusted carcasses, rats moved in and then birds. Occasionally, a carpenter or engineer would come and assess the damage, perhaps even making an estimate on the ever-rising cost to repair and refloat her. Each storm broke her open a little more, and each bird and beetle and worm and rat worked industriously into the new cracks and holes. After some time, she ceased to be a landmark on the remote beach, and then she ceased to be visible at all as the last remains of her skeleton, the sturdy oak ribs that had once supported her hull, wore down, collapsed, and were finally lost in the white sands and ceaseless tides. The last 25 years of her life are a story of a slowly melting ship left alone on a tropical beach. But the first 25 years of her life are a different story entirely, and encompass her time as a rich man's plaything, a hard-working navy patrol boat, a gift between lovers, and finally, as the key player in one of the most notorious unsolved disappearances of the 20th century. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1955 tragedy of the M.V. Joyita. Thank you so much. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, ghost ship consultant for Relative Disasters Cruise Lines. And I'm her brother, Greg, buoyancy director for Relative Disasters Marine Engineering. Nice. Yes, thank you for appointing me buoyancy director. I won't let you down. There it is. <laughs> there it is. I knew you would come up with something good for that. I know nothing about the Joyita, and I'm so excited to hear about it because this is like a ghost story and a romance and everything. Like, why is this not a, a five-part, you know, movie series? It definitely could be. Uh, it has real right? miniseries potential. Um, <laughs> and the reason why you haven't heard about it, and I hadn't heard about it, either until last summer was that it's just okay. wasn't reported on very extensively in America. Oh, sure. Uh, the okay. newspapers in Fiji, Samoa and New Zealand <laughs> really went to town on this story. And that's why my Good. husband who's from that area grew up hearing about it. And so did his cousin. It's like a famous ghost ship story. It's a, it's okay. their okay. Mary Celeste. I'm, I'm so much more interested. All right. It's a really wild tale. <laughs> Our main source for this episode is David Wright's book, Joyita, Solving the Mystery, which I highly recommend if you're into the, if you want more of the gritty details, especially on the human cost of the Joyita incident, which is huge and tragic. Okay. Um, it's a very good book. So I always think that ships have such interesting lives, don't they? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. They get built, they sail around the world, they change hands, they get rebuilt, they sink, they get refloated. Yep. Like, there's just so many interesting things that can happen to a ship. They definitely have their own stories. Sure. Absolutely. So the ship in our story today has a really interesting life. Okay. We're going to start with some stats. Okay. She was built in 1931 in Los Angeles. She's an American boat. Excuse me, an okay. American ship. Ship, yeah, <laughs> don't get that wrong. We're going to get a lot of we're going to get a lot of emails about that. Thank you. She was 69 feet long and 17 feet across and had a draft of seven and a half feet. So she's not a super yacht. She's really just like right. a pleasure craft. Sure, sure. Uh, but she was built in this very sturdy, practical style. So her hull was cedar on an oak frame with teak decking, all of which made her perfect for yachting in the mid-ocean. You could have sailed the Joyita around the Dang. world when she was young. Yeah. No problem. Those are some hardy woods right yep. there. And also, she had all the latest bells and whistles. She had diesel engines. She had an early oh. version of an automatic pilot. She had a <laughs> cool. deep freeze in 1931. Huh. Okay. That's impressive. It is, right? Um, yeah. And then at this point, we need to take a long sidebar into old Hollywood because the Joyita was commissioned and paid for by the movie director Roland West. Have you ever heard of him? Uh I have heard of Roland West. Okay. So Roland West names the Joyita for his wife, who is silent film star Jewel Carmen. Joyita okay. or Joita is Spanish for little Jewel. Okay. Just a note about the name. I've heard it pronounced as Joita in relation to Roland West and her early life. Okay. But if you listen to Polynesian and New Zealand sources in this story, they use the hard J. And that's how okay. her last captain pronounced it as well. Okay. At some point, she changed from Joita to Joita, which is... Look, boats live interesting lives. They can be they multilingual. Certainly do. They certainly do. There you go. Yeah. Roland West and Jewel Carmen were extremely <laughs> interesting people with eventful lives. Okay. Jewel was involved in a famous statutory rape case in 1913, which ultimately had to be dropped when she could not produce a birth certificate, proving she was a minor. Okay. This was when she was 15 years old. Okay. She right. went on, let's see, four years later, when she's 19 years old, she goes on to sue two movie studios at once over her contracts. Uh, and by the way, we, we should absolutely talk uh, on another episode about how horrifying early Hollywood contracts were. It was truly, truly, like she was... She won the lawsuit yeah. because she was really uh, being taken advantage of, like, clearly. Yeah. No, those those early As contracts were terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so that's Jewel Carmen. Standard, standard, standard practices. Right, right. Really. Okay. So that's Jewel. As for Roland, he was a director of silent movies, most of which were crime and drama pictures. Okay. So his big hits were the 1926 movies The Bat which starred Jewel Carmen as this beautiful ingenue who I think ends up solving the mystery. Okay. And its sequel. Do you want to guess the title of the sequel? Uh, the second bat. <laughs> the Batman. <laughs> that would be perfect because it is literally it? a guy dressed up as a bat is the villain. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm here for the it. The sequel is The Bat Whispers, which came out in 1930 Ooh. and did not star Jewel Carmen because their marriage was on the rocks by then. Okay. 
He also directed, I think you're thinking of Alibi, which is this really wild... That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Thank yeah. you. I, that was driving me nuts. Okay. It's this crime drama with a lot of like experimental and noir elements. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is, you know, it's not really a proto-noir, but if you wanted to make that argument, you could make it. So a lot of times when you talk about the story of the Joita, it's... It starts out in this kind of thing and everyone's like, oh, Roland West was a horror director. He really wasn't, but he was definitely like one of the early noir directors. Crime and crime and passion kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And murder and robbery and and whatever else. Yeah, Uh, Alibi was his big hit. It was nominated for three of the very first Academy Awards. Yes. Didn't win. Cool. However. Didn't win? (laughs) It did not. Sorry. (laughs) That's all right. However, sometime in the early 1930s, as he was making movies and sailing around on his yacht, Roland yep. West began an affair with Thelma Todd, who also loved yachts Oh, I know sailing. Thelma Todd. Mm-hmm. You sure do. Oh, poor Thelma Todd. You know how we know Thelma Todd is because she was in a Marx Brothers movie. Horse feathers, yep. Horse feathers, baby. Mm-hmm. That's the good stuff. Madam, can you please stand up so I can see my sunrise? <laughs> was that Thelma Todd? <laughs> No, no, no. It was just whoever was sitting on Zeppo's lap. Oh, Zeppo. Uh, okay. Zeppo was the funniest. Anyway, okay. Uh, Thelma Todd was a truly gifted comedic actress. I think we she can all agree. really was. She had a sense Absolutely. of timing. She had a really expressive face and body. She was yep. top notch. Uh, she, she was really also was. worked to death. She made like yep. 17 movies in one year, which is unheard yep. of. Well, and again, those kind of contracts exactly yeah we'll do an episode on that she was put through an absolute meat grinder is what it was and she still managed to turn out incredible quality work mm-hmm. Thelma Todd was very an short all-star. career yeah absolutely aside from the Marx Brothers she also worked with Buster Keaton and Jimmy Durante so yep. she was she was absolutely top shelf she was also a gorgeous 20-something fresh off her reign as Miss Massachusetts when she met Roland Yep. So in addition to all that, she's drop-dead gorgeous. So by 1935, Jewel, Roland, and Thelma are in this kind of awkward... I don't want to call it a thruple because nobody's really enjoying themselves. Happy. Yep. Uh, triangle. Okay. Jewel has her own house. Okay, Roland and Thelma are sharing an apartment over the cafe they all own together. Jewel and Roland are still married, and Thelma is dating other men. It's just like a okay. big mess. I mean, if if everyone were happy no, with it, it nobody's wouldn't be, happy but with nobody's this. happy with it, and that's what makes it a mess, exactly. So on December 16th, Ugh. 1935, Thelma is found dead in her car, in her garage. Yeah. In the end, her death is found to be accidental carbon monoxide poisoning, but the circumstances are... Questionable? Yeah, I think my kids would say, highly sus. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait for them to cringe listening to that. (laughs) You know I live to make them cringe. Roland and Jill both are suspected of involvement. Both of their reputations and professional standings take a hit, and they finally get divorced in 1938. Jewel never acted again, and Roland never directed another movie. I mean, it's kind of a hard pitch to hire the guy. It really really ruined both of their lives. That's the end of our sidebar. Okay. Uh, Just want to... Well, on that happy note, let's talk about a ship. So the Joita is a bad luck ship. 
Okay. And her involvement in this triangle, I think, is something that people point to a lot as, you know, even at the age of three, she was, you know, she was part of the property that was being disputed between Roland and Jewel. And Roland was okay. also taking Thelma out sailing every weekend. Right. So yeah. she's a minor player in this, but it's it's just such a fascinating story. I feel like sure. I had to add it. Roland sold the Joyita in 1936, and she was just a regular little yacht for a few years, making pleasure trips up and down the coast of California until 1941. Okay. Uh, in 1941, she was acquired by the United States Navy and sent to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Oh. Yep. <laughs> okay, so her streak continues. Oh, yeah. Oh, she never man. has good luck. She oh, just, poor Joyita. situation after situation. Okay. Uh, the Navy decides that the Joyita is going to be a yard patrol boat or a yippie. Isn't that yep. cute? Yep. This is Makes the first sense. of her several overhauls. She okay. had been built as a fancy little yacht, but now the Navy needed basic sturdy gray patrol boats. So that's how she was outfitted. Okay. She survived the attack on Pearl Harbor that December, but ran aground a couple years later off the island of Lanai. Okay. And she really suffered heavy damage. Since the Navy still needed yippies, they repaired her instead of scrapping her. So this is her second overhaul. Her hull is partially replanked, maybe not as nicely as it had been originally. Okay. And much worse than that, her pipes were replaced. Yeah. She had been built with brass and copper piping. Okay. But because of the war shortages, yeah. the Navy replaced those with galvanized iron. <laughs> What could possibly go wrong with that? That's the more nice I read about sturdy. this, the more I was like, they really were just trying to get a few more months out of her, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, this is the duct tape around the tailpipe kind of fix here. I would argue it's much worse because the uh -oh. tailpipe is underwater and if it yeah. starts leaking. That's yeah. true. That's true. That's true. Um, so galvanized <laughs> iron, in case you don't know, is really rust prone. Yeah. Uh, you don't want it underwater. You especially don't want it in salt water, and you especially don't want it in warm tropical salt water. And especially, huh. you don't want it screwed into brass or copper fittings and joints. Oh, and 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 where was this ship again? And what was it doing? <laughs> All of those things. All of those things. Excellent. Okay. In 1946, with the war in the Pacific finally over, yep. the Joyita was stripped of all her Navy equipment and sold to a Hawaiian fishing company. This is her third overhaul. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she's, so she's the, been a yacht. She's the, been a yard patrol boat. Yep, yep. Now she is a fishing boat. So the new owners kept all of her iron piping, but added refrigeration equipment, Navy surplus life rafts, okay. and this is a stroke of genius. They added... 740 feet of cork to the hold of the Joyita on the inside, obviously. Oh, okay. Cork was an early way to insulate cargo, and they were expecting to fill it up with raw fish. Yeah. So the cork was intended to keep everything fresh. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, the other thing <laughs> that cork does... <laughs> is absorb, right? <laughs> no, it's buoyant as heck. No, I know it's buoyant, but won't, like, fish stuff seep into it? Sure. Okay. That's fine. Is that going to bother you, though, if you're No, it's not. I mean, I guess not. If you're I guess a it makes sense. So the cork inside the Joyita made her virtually unsinkable. Yeah. Love not those words when we're talking Titanic about a ship. Way. <laughs> <laughs> not in a Titanic way. 
But more she in was, a, the laws of physics will not allow this to drop kind exactly. of way. <laughs> she was genuinely, genuinely very floaty. Sure. So buoyancy, however, does not mean successful fishing. No. <laughs> the Joyita is so unprofitable as a fishing vessel that Aww. she changes hands twice before ending up with Catherine Luamala, an anthropologist at the University of Hawaii, okay. who gets it at the rock-bottom price of $17,000. Oh, my gosh. When? Mm-hmm. When? Very early. No, this would have been 1952 or 53. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. It's okay. pretty cheap for a yacht. Even yep. today, I think it would be pretty yep. cheap. I mean, yeah, today, today it's even cheaper. Yeah. It's not a wow. great yacht, but uh, it's yeah. not a great yacht, but it is a yacht. <laughs> uh, Catherine Luamala does not need a yacht. Sure, it's not for her. It's a present for her boyfriend, Thomas uh, Dusty Miller. Okay. Dusty Miller is a British sailor who has already abandoned his wife and small children in England, so it's not a huge surprise when he sails away from Hawaii with Catherine Luamala's boat, <sighs> and goes to Samoa. He never and comes back to Hawaii. And the streak continues. <laughs> there it is. Good job, Joyita. Dusty Miller is a crappy boyfriend. Okay. But Agreed. he's a great sailor. Okay. And he knows the South Pacific trade and fishing routes extremely well. I just want to, I just want to, I'm sorry. Hang on. Yeah. Quick, quick note. Mm-hmm. Woman gives man yacht as present. Man sails away in yacht, leaving woman behind. Like, that's, that's the story, right? So, it's not... <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to explain this without taking an hour of your time. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just thinking, like, you know, she gives him this really nice, and, I mean, let's be fair, expensive gift. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, thanks, dear. Bye. I don't know. Doesn't sit well with me. It's really unclear what their relationship actually was. Oh, okay. So, like, it um, might not have been a romantic relationship? It's possible. Okay. All right. Um, but also, she does not hold a grudge. She later dedicates part of her book to him in the 1970s. Okay. You know, 20 years after this. All right. So All right. I, All right. I don't think she's bitter. She never presses charges. She never, like, tries to Reports. sue him over this. Yeah. Okay. All right. All and right. it's really unclear if they ever corresponded after he leaves. All right. Maybe maybe he just came to her one night and was, hey, I'd really like to set it sail. And she said, well, have I got something for you? <laughs> Go All on. Right. Take it. I'm not using it. I'd like to I'd like to think the best of people. OK, let's, sure. Let's just go with that. Why not? Why not? Uh, aside from being a bad boyfriend, <laughs> if he was a boyfriend, Dusty if he Miller, was, Dusty Miller has a few personal failings. OK, he's a very heavy drinker. Uh, always uh, good he, when you're out on a ship by yourself for weeks. On no, it. never good. Never <laughs> good. And he doesn't allow any drinking on board. Okay, that's good. But he's careless about paying his crew and keeping them safe, which is a huge failure among his yeah. crew, which is mostly Native Pacific Islanders, because those communities place a heavy importance on safety and responsibility, especially at sea. At sea, yeah. So he has trouble retaining top talent. Sure. He's mostly sailing with very young people. Okay. Or people who can't get a job on any other boat for whatever okay. reason. One person he does work with more than once is Chuck Simpson, his first mate. Okay. Chuck Simpson is American. He's actually Native American. He's from Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Um, and he 
is useful to Dusty. He's first of all, he's young, he's very strong, he's a very good sailor, mm-hmm. but also he's American and the Juita still has American registry. Right. Okay. Okay. And the rest of the crew is made up of, like I said, either very young sailors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're almost all Pacific Islander, I think. Okay. Fijian, Samoan, and Takalawan. Okay. So Dusty Miller and Chuck Simpson and their crew run a few fishing trips out around Samoa, but they cannot turn a profit. Right. In 1955, he tries to sell the Joyita, which still belongs to Catherine Luamala, for $70,000. Wow. Okay. Remember. (laughs) Remember, he doesn't technically own it. (laughs) And the person who bought it paid $17,000. Astonishingly. But but he put so much work into it. (laughs) No. He just ran her into more... More injury, more... Uh, this is awful. Okay. Astonishingly, there are no takers at $70,000. So at this point, he realizes that he's not cut out for the fishing life and neither is the Joita. Okay. In 1955, he gets permission from New Zealand to change the Joita's registration from a fishing vessel mm-hmm. to a merchant vessel. Okay. So as you can imagine, the government is very hesitant to let this aging, poorly maintained, I don't know, ex-yacht <laughs> carry supplies and trade goods. Can't imagine uh, why. And their captain seems so trustworthy. Can you imagine putting passengers on this thing at this point? Oh, my God. Okay. But okay. an official f- named Roger Peerless, he's a New Zealander, he was on a fishing charter aboard the Joita, and he made friends with Dusty Miller. Okay. He convinces the government that the Joita was seaworthy and Dusty Miller was a good captain. So eventually, the New Zealand government licenses the Joita to carry cargo, but not passengers. Okay. So he's good to go. This is very exciting. Okay, but he Miller. can't carry passengers. That's what the license says. Okay. All right. Nobody's going to stop him from putting passengers on there. I think is where we're going with this. I see. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now, nobody's going to let him just run freight back and forth between Apia and what was then Western Samoa. Apia is where he lives. Okay. And okay. Pongo Pongo in American Samoa, which is the most profitable merchant route. So zipping back and forth between the Samoas is, okay. you know, what people usually do with this type of boat. That's what's going to get, that's what's going to make you your living. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Uh, However, Dusty Miller doesn't pay his bills, Uh, like to the point where uh, the Americans do not allow him to dock the Joita in Pongo Pongo. Okay. This seems like it could have been avoided. What can you do? He couldn't make that $70,000 sale, so... Sure. Of course he can't pay his bills. Sure. Okay. However, some of the smaller islands are desperate for supplies in 1955. Okay. The Takalau Islands, which is a group of atolls 300 miles away from Samoa, are in need of food and medicine and a doctor. And they also have 70 tons of copra. Copra is raw coconut meat. Okay. Okay. Um, That's ready for export, which will spoil if if it sits on the waterfront for too long. Makes sense. Okay. Takalau is actually really difficult to get to. It has no airport and no harbor. So you need a small boat or a seaplane to even get close. Okay. If you want to haul... 70 tons of copra, obviously you need a boat, and the Joita is really one of the few vessels that can do this. this. Okay. Would, okay. would be okay for this job. Sure. All right. 
So the copper dealers are eventually the ones who fund the Joita's first trip as a merchant ship. Okay. And Dusty Miller is able to sign on a crew. So he takes on two employees of the copper company as supercargo. So they're okay. listed as crew, although they're really just passengers responsible for cargo. Okay. This is where the the agreement to not carry passengers kind of starts bending a little bit. Sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, he also agrees to transport a doctor, as Takalao has requested a doctor to deal with a really gnarly gangrene case. Oh, okay. So now he's got these, quote unquote, supercargo people, and then he just starts taking on passengers. Right. Because, I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound at this point. Right. you got to make your profit somehow. <laughs> right. Uh, the passengers are mostly Takalauan going home to visit. Okay. They include a family with an 11-year-old and a 3-year-old child, uh, a radio company employee, and a father of five who is traveling alone. Okay. He also takes along Roger Peerless and two other government officials. Every adult <laughs> passenger paid six pounds, ten shillings for their tickets, and the toddler was half price. Oh, wow. Okay. The government employees paid 13 pounds. That sounds about right. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to flagrantly. I will say he wasn't overcharging people. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. I don't think you could charge people more than that once they saw the ship. Okay, so because this is a merchant trip, in addition to the 25 people on board, yep. the Joita is also carrying hundreds of pounds of sugar, rice, biscuits, sago, beef, kerosene, timber, okay. 80 empty oil drums, and rat traps. And they're all carrying them down in a hold that's stuffed with cork that stinks like fish. Absolutely. Excellent. Oh, you're getting a complete picture this, here. This sounds it. amazing. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong? What possibly could go wrong? The Joita sets out on October 1st and barely makes it out of Apia Harbor before breaking down. Okay. That sounds about she, right, too. <laughs> <laughs> she's towed back to dock, and Dusty Miller diagnoses a clutch problem. They eventually get the starboard engine going, <laughs> but as she sets off again... Yep. On October 3rd, the port engine is completely disassembled, lying on the deck what? as they're leaving. <laughs> what? Now, boats should never have one engine. You should always have two engines in case one breaks down. But she sets off again on October 3rd Okay. Uh, with her port engine completely disassembled. Now... Had this happened during the day, they would not have been allowed to leave. Right. Like this. So they snuck out working. under cover of night, basically. Exactly. They leave Apia Harbor in the middle of the night, and they're traveling north at five knots. So they're well out of sight by the time the sun comes up. Wow. The voyage from Samoa to Takalau should have taken the Joita about 47 hours. Okay. Okay. It was reported overdue and then missing almost immediately, probably because of the time-sensitive needs to get the doctor in and the copper out. Yep. So people knew right away that she had not gotten there on time. Okay. By 2 o'clock that afternoon, so about 10 hours after she was due, the New Zealand Air Force is flying around Takalau searching for the Joita. Okay. This turns into the largest air search ever carried out in the South Pacific, over 100,000 square miles. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Civilian flights were also asked to keep an eye out for the Joita. However, there is no search by water. Like, nobody tries to sail to 
right sail along her route and then see if there's any sign of an accident or okay debris or whatever okay the assumption was that the one working engine had failed and she'd be drifting westward on the current so that's where they were looking okay and you know a 69 foot yacht is something you can see on the ocean sure but you know i can i can see why it would be tricky to find it but mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it's a big ocean. It is a very large piece of water, yeah. Yes. Uh, but a plane should have been able to spot her, and nobody reports any sightings. Okay. So by the end of October, the Joyita is presumed sunk. Okay. That turned out to be not quite true. Okay. So 37 days after the Joyita left Apia on the morning of November 10th, the crew of the ship Tuvalu, sailing from Suva, Fiji, Okay. Cited what they thought was a sinking wreck, a fishing vessel partially submerged and listing way over to port. So she was actually listing 55 degrees over to port. Okay. So she looked like she was about to roll over and sink. But remember, <laughs> she's the floatiest ship ever built. Yep. So she's not actually sinking. Right. So at first, they're not sure what they're looking at. They make a wide circle around it. And then they can see the name on the bow, which is above the water. And they could see it clearly, Joyita. I'm going to read you the message that the captain of the Tuvalu sent to Suva. Okay. Quote, Joyita found half waterlogged in position 14 degrees, 42 minutes south, 179 degrees, 45 minutes east by dead reckoning. Okay. Boat sent across, but nobody found on board, but possibly in flooded compartments. Port side superstructure, including funnel, blown or washed away. Canvas awning rigged apparently subsequent to accident. No logbook or message found. End quote. Huh. So she's a ghost ship. Yeah. The Joyita was towed very slowly and carefully to the Fijian island, Vanua Levu. Okay. She wasn't in great shape. Sure. Of course, there was, like like they said, there was a lot of damage to the superstructure, the, the deck, the pilot house, the bridge and the funnel. Right. But the cork lining and the hold full of empty drums meant that she had floated nicely even before she was pumped out. Okay. Like the Tuvalu had found, there was no sign of anybody on board. There were no bodies, no messages, and of course, no survivors. Yeah. And no sign of any, like there are no bodies or anything, nothing? Nothing. Oh, man. Okay. Yep. So I know you're wondering. I'm a little bit. She was so <laughs> incredibly buoyant. Why did she take on so much water? Uh, because they shoved all the cork in like her bow and the stern sunk. No, they actually did a really nice job okay. on the cork. Right. The cork was throughout. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> that's a great guess, though. Because of the cork, uh, she went underwater and then rolled back upright. Oh my god, I love it. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> all right, I got nothing. <laughs> All right. Uh, remember I told you about galvanized iron pump piping and how it was screwed into brass fittings and the iron had fallen apart, but the fitting was still there? Okay. So well, when investigators in Suva looked under the floor of the engine room, they found that a section of that piping had broken open. So essentially, the Joyita had a one-inch diameter hole in the very bottom of the hull. Yeah. This would have been out of sight because it's under the floor. Yep. So the boat would have flooded from the bottom up without an obvious leak right, showing. Right, right. 
and probably the first sign that anything was wrong would have been that the one working engine stopped because it was underwater. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Another thing the investigators found was the weird lack of papers and equipment. Okay. So the ship's log was gone. So were her lifeboats and life jackets. Okay. okay. As well as the thousand pounds in cash that the copper agents had been carrying. Ruh row. Yep. Okay. But other things were still there, enough to give the investigators an idea of what might have happened. Okay. One of the bilge pumps had been moved to a higher position and tied in place. So obviously, if if the hold is flooding, you want to pump it out. Right, right. This pump had not been hooked up. Okay. The starboard engine, the one they had been working on when they left Apia, was still completely non-functional and in pieces. The port engine had seized up when it was submerged, so it wouldn't have been working either. And that's a major repair. It's not something you. That's can not just something you can just slap together. Duct tape. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The steering also was not functional at all. Okay. Here's another thing that wasn't working: the ship's radio. Oh. It was still switched on and tuned to the emergency frequency. Okay. Which really gives me the creeps. Yeah. But a break in the aerial meant that it only would have been able to transmit a signal about two miles. Okay. All right. This is an incredibly easy repair. Um, you can repair it with a coat hanger. Yeah. But but it looks it looked like they didn't know it was broken. So they had been transmitting a distress call. It wasn't going out. They didn't realize it wasn't going out. Just it's horrible to think of. Yeah. Okay. Also, a lot of the cargo is missing. Four tons of the cargo is missing. And the investigators think it must have been thrown overboard because it's too heavy to have floated away on its own. This would be like the lumber. Right, right. Uh, the rat traps. <laughs> <laughs> sure. The gas tanks are also pretty low. And they calculate that the port engine had run for about 250 nautical miles, which would have put them as close as 50 miles off the coast of Takalau if they had stayed on course. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So at the end of this investigation, they have a big mystery on their hands. Uh, the newspapers go wild. Yep. There are a lot of theories. Yeah. You want to hear some theories? Oh, please. I want theories. Okay. Uh, human intervention. We have pirates. Sure. Always a good choice. So in this case, the pirates would have boarded, taken everyone prisoner, tried to scuttle the ship, um, and left. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It doesn't yep. seem sure. like that one had a lot of legs. Another one that doesn't have a lot of legs is a Soviet submarine. So this is Ooh. during the Cold War. <laughs> the idea is that a submarine surfaces alongside the Droida, uh, kidnaps everybody, makes them take life rafts and life vests, and takes them away to behind the Iron Curtain. Okay, sure. And they are never seen again. Yeah. All right. Uh, another theory is mutiny. So someone would have gotten into a fight with Dusty Miller, chucked him overboard. Uh, then the Joyita started taking on water, and they panicked and made everybody evacuate. Okay. It, this one's not great because there's, you know, no evidence of a struggle, no evidence, no blood, or, you know, there's just nothing that says there was a huge fight on the ship. Okay. We've also got two natural causes that people float as possibilities. Okay. One is a water spout. A water spout sure. is a water tornado. Yep. Um, which could have conceivably knocked the Droida over. Uh, her superstructure was damaged, like I said. So sure. maybe some of that was from a water spout. And the other theory is that a rogue wave capsized her, 
She kind of floated back up to the position she was found in. Everybody was rinsed overboard, and that was that. Okay. I mean... These are fun theories. Yeah. Okay. So the evidence just points away for most of them. The damage uh, to the superstructure, which is where people usually look at to find signs of violence right. or signs of uh, a natural catastrophe. Yep. Most of that damage was probably done by the water just eating away at the ship because that was where it was, you know, she was listing at such a dramatic angle that part of that would have been underwater every time a wave went by. Okay. So that action plus the barnacles plus whatever sea life was in there would have just created a lot of damage. Yeah. So the investigators find that the Joita was almost certainly abandoned voluntarily. Okay. And pretty soon after the crew realized that they weren't going to be able to stop the leaking. So way before, you know, way before she was found. Right. And probably, most probably before October 5th. Okay. Okay. The day she she was expected to arrive in Tuvalu. The missing life rafts and life jackets, plus the fact that they took the ship's log and some navigational equipment, that points to an organized evacuation more than a panicked rush. Right. And the fact that there was no message left inside yep. meant that they probably thought the Joita was about to sink. Okay. All right. That's Which fair. she certainly looked like she was going to do even a month later when she's found. They think right. she's sinking. So the life rafts, unfortunately, were not adequate for 25 people. Yeah. The ones the Joyita was carrying were Navy surplus Carly floats, which truly were just rafts. They were designed for evacuation from a shipwreck and immediate pickup by another vessel. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they're really just like temporary flotation yep. devices. They were flotation devices. They were not boats. <laughs> no. And they weren't long-term like rescue. Right. Exactly. Boats. They had no supplies. They had nothing. Yep. Okay. All three together could hold maybe 10 people. Okay. And the others would have had to hang on from the outside. Mm. So this meant there would be absolutely no room for food, water, or supplies. Right. So even overloaded like that, the rafts were a lot more immobile than the Joita. So they would have drifted much faster than the Joita, even with people clinging to the outside. Okay. Okay. You know, by the time the search started, they had probably already died of exposure or thirst or sharks. A Carly float washed up in Fiji a few months later that supposedly had bite marks outside and bloody clothing inside. Oh. Um, But it could not be conclusively tied to the Joita. Okay. Okay. But none of the passengers or crew of the Joita were ever seen again. Okay. The loss of so many Takalauans in particular, over half of the crew and passengers were from Takalau, it had an enormous and tragic impact on the islands. With a population of about 1,500 people, virtually everyone living in Takalau knew somebody lost on the Joita. And for the families, friends, and communities of the missing, the loss was made worse by lack of closure and a multitude of unanswered questions. So today, the story of the Joita remains a deeply painful event for families and communities across the South Pacific. As for the Joita itself, it was still usable. Like it's, there's nothing, there's no damage to the ship except for that broken pipe. Right. Catherine Luamala sold it when the investigation was concluded, and the Joita went through her fifth overhaul into a local copra transport ship okay. with a passenger license. Okay. Uh, she lost her cork lining. Okay. But in return, she got two Remy lifeboats. Yay. Not life rafts, lifeboats. Boats. Okay. Yeah. 
which she needed because in January of 1957, weeks after she was declared seaworthy again, she hit a reef off the coast of Batiki Island and immediately started sinking. Come on, man. She has no engine, no electricity, and the lifeboat was damaged while it was lowered. Uh, but this time they were rescued immediately and nobody was hurt. Okay, nobody that's was good. Lost. She was eventually refloated and moved to the beach outside Levuco while the owners and insurers fought over the money. Where she just rotted away. No, she was actually overhauled again after a year of rotting Oh, for on the crying beach. out loud. Yeah, she was recommissioned in 1958. Okay. In 1959, 13 months after her recommissioning, she ran aground again. That's the end for her. Yeah. At the end of 1959, the Julieta is beached again in the same spot outside Levuka, and this time she's just left to rot. Okay. By the end of the 1970s, she had broken apart completely and disintegrated to the point where nothing was left. Like we said at the beginning, you know, ships live very interesting lives, and it is just wild how many different services the Joyita was pressed into, mm-hmm. how many different, you know, like one of those tragedies would be, you know, the entire story of another ship. But no, 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 the Joyita's got to go more. Like, come on, man. Yeah, she just doesn't have any peaceful times. No. I mean, unless unless you count the three or four years that she's sailing up and down the coast of California. You know, she's not well maintained. She's yeah. not owned by people who can really take care of her. Yeah. Uh. All right. Well, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, slightly inflated? No, that won't work with a buoyancy <laughs> joke. We do it, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And why not? Why not? <laughs> why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, Ella, I don't know why I'm on this kick, but it's going to be another court case. I've done, this is going to be my third court case this year. Just go to law school. I know you want to. I actually don't. Um, <laughs> but I will. I will say this. This is a very interesting. Uh, this is a very interesting one. So this is a uh, a case that involves two women who registered to vote, mm-hmm. and the judge in Maryland who did everything within his power to get them taken off the voting rolls in this is the lesser v garnett case of 1922 that sounds like a disaster that's going to make me incredibly angry oh it's so much fun all right see you then